James 4, let me read to you verses 4 through 7. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Several years ago, I went with a group of people from a Bible study I'm part of, from Emmanuel, to Panera Bread for lunch after church on Sunday. We were sitting at the long table in the middle there. You know the one I'm talking about. And we saw another guy from Emmanuel, Matt was his name, come in with his arm around somebody who most certainly was not his wife. And they stood in line and they ordered their food and they went and they sat at a table and they didn't even like sit at a booth. They sat at the table kind of right next to us. Although it was obvious they didn't see us yet. They weren't looking around at us. And so I'm starting to get a little bit antsy. I'm asking Deidre, who is that? Have you, ah, what's going on? (laughs) So what should we do? And so I finally decided I'm I'm just going to go ask. So I go up and I say, hey, Matt. And shake his hand and I look at this person and say, I haven't met. And, and she says, no, no, you wouldn't have met me. And she introduces herself to me. And that didn't answer any questions. <laughs> so I go back to the table, regroup. Now I've got the whole table involved. And I was like, this, this could be church discipline right here. There's enough people that we can deal with this right here. <laughs> look up Matt's wife's phone number on my phone and text her and say, hey, where's Matt right now? And she texts back, He's at lunch with his sister. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) All right, then. (laughs) There's lots of different ways that story could have ended that you would not have laughed at. You understand that adultery is not humorous. It's such a serious sin against God and man and covenant and government and family that it sobers you up when you think about the effects of it. I'm going to give you an outline this morning. Three A's in your marriage counseling with your relationship with Christ. Three A's for marriage counseling in your relationship with Christ. The analogy that James uses this morning in these verses is that of human marriage, human infidelity, adultery, and applies it to your relationship with Christ. I'm calling it three A's. I've been reading counseling books and uh, marriage books. They seem to love acronyms and they love alliterated outlines and all that kind of stuff. So this is my attempt at that. Apparently it's helpful in counseling. Three A's for your marriage, your marriage counseling with Christ. Understand this, when the Lord chose the people for himself, he used this analogy of marriage. Before the foundation of time, the Lord set his affections on those whom he would save. He chose them. Deuteronomy 7 says he chose them because he loved them. And then it goes on to say he loved them because he chose them. It's a circular arrangement here that God sets his affections on someone and then in time creates that person and then in time pursues them. 
and gets a hold of them. He pursues them. The scripture says he pursues his own like a bridegroom goes with joy and love and excitement. He pursues them and he wins them and he wins them by changing their heart. He doesn't win them against their will. He wins them by changing their will and giving them a heart of love and giving them a heart of affection towards him. And having won them, he brings them into a covenant with himself. This is why the scripture refers to the church as the the bride of Christ. Into this marriage covenant with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He refers to the church as his bride. We united with his church through faith in Jesus Christ become in in that sense married to Christ, captured by this covenant. And the marriage analogy goes from the very beginning before an eternity past where God sets his heart on us. Nevertheless, our hearts are prone to wander. They're prone to drift. They're prone to not be satisfied with this marriage, with this relationship, and to entertain other offers. Thus, James begins with you adulterous people. Your first step on this outline here in your marriage counseling for your relationship with Christ. One, recognize your adulterous love. Recognize your adulterous love. Love. You adulterous people, James says. This catches us by surprise. So far in the book of James, he's been very nice to us. <laughs> he refers to us as my brothers, even when he's being somewhat sarcastic. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? He asks up in chapter three, verse 12. And that's the kind of language we've grown accustomed to. Even when he is rebuking people, he's doing it with the sense of love and calling us, oh, my brothers, in this affectionate terminology until here where he says, you adulterous people. He lured us in and then rattles our cage. The Bible often refers to love for the world as spiritual adultery in some very graphic language, which I'm going to use as I read these passages because I want you to see the gravity of the, of the, the love for the world. Second Chronicles 21, verse 11 says, Judah became a land of whoredom because they laid down on the hills with the idols of other nations. This is at the end of Judah's time. Israel's already in exile. And the prophets say that Judah became a land of whoredom because the imagery there, she's lying down on the hills with the gods of other nations. They'd made political alliances, economic alliances. I'm certain they wouldn't have referred to what they were doing as spiritual adultery, just relationships of convenience, but God is not impressed by their alliances. Jeremiah 2, verse 20, again, Israel's in idolatry. Jeremiah is rebuking them. Jeremiah explains that they're gonna be sent to exile. And he says, Jeremiah 2, verse 20, even though God saved you from slavery in Israel, Israel has bowed down like a whore under any available tree. Ezekiel 16, verse 26. Ezekiel rebukes Israel now. You played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbor, multiplying your harlotry. Even the Philistines were appalled by your lewd behavior, Jeremiah says. Even the Philistines were shocked at it. It takes a lot of work to shock a Philistine. But they did, and notice what was shocking the Philistines, that the Israelites are moving in this image from one adulterous relationship to another. The Israelites had left their relationship with Yahweh for the Philistines, have now left the Philistines for the Egyptians again, and now on to the Assyrians. 
Ezekiel 16, verse 27 now says the Assyrians were shocked, or the Philistines were shocked because you played the whore with the Assyrians in that you would not be satisfied by the Egyptians. He uses that very sexual language to say that because the Egyptians didn't satisfy you, you moved on. And that language is not confined even to the Old Testament. You remember when the Jews surrounded Jesus to hear him preach, knowing Jesus, knowing that they were soon to betray him. Mark 8, verse 38 says, this is a sinful and adulterous generation. You've prostituted yourselves, he says. You've sold yourselves to the highest bidder. Rome offers more than a relationship with the Savior does, then you take that. In James 4, verse 4, don't you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James paints this picture of being friends with the world, playing footsie with the world under the table, hoping your spouse who's sitting next to you won't notice. It's sad, it's pathetic, and as a side note, it's dangerous. You know that adultery is one of the most dangerous sins. It can result in you being murdered, of course, but beyond just that, it destroys your life. The adulterer decides that his own Sensual satisfaction is more value, more noteworthy to him than faithfulness to his family, than a relationship with his wife or his, her husband, a relationship with his children. It costs you your house. You end up having to move out. You cost your spouse the house, likely having to sell it. It costs uh, generations of relationships are scarred by it because you're captivated by your own lust. That's the analogy James uses for the person who's a Christian but loves the world. In fact, it doesn't even use the word loves. It's phileo is the, the word here. Sometimes it's translated love. Here it's friendship. A Christian who thinks they can be friends with the world without affecting their relationship with Christ. Maybe you dated other people before you were married but you don't keep dating those other people when you're married. If you're engaged and your fiance comes to you and says, yeah, our wedding is in a few weeks, but you know what? I would really like to keep seeing other people after we're married. We can be open-minded about this. That would be the end of the relationship, I would hope. You don't keep going on dates with people you used to date before you got married. You don't keep chatting with them on Facebook, do you? No is the answer. This is me telling you, don't be chatting with your ex-boyfriends or girlfriends on Facebook. Come on, it's a big world, move on. And yet there are so many Christians, so-called Christians, that flirt with the world and hope that Jesus sitting across from the table won't notice. I want you to understand, you have to recognize this. This is the imperative here in verse four. Uh, the, the thrust of this passage is, do you not know this? Do you not know that your friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't you know that it's hostility? Don't you know that it's adultery? There's this system set up in, in scripture. You can be orbiting in the world of Christ or you can be orbiting around the axis of this world. There are two different systems. The, axi the axes don't align. They point differently. 
They have different magnetic poles. This is why you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You'll love one and hate the other. The planets don't align. They're not in tension with each other. They don't keep the tidal patterns on each other in line like our moon does with us. The planets are divergent. They have opposing magnetic forces. They repel each other, which is why it's at a human level. You can't keep your life together if you're having an adulterous relationship because the systems don't line up. Everything is repelled, everything falls apart. It decays your own heart, it decays your own affections. So it is with your love for Christ. If you are in love with Christ and in love with the world, they do not line up. And just like in a human relationship where an affair will burn your house down, in a spiritual relationship, what do you think will happen if you pursue a friendship with the world while you are in a relationship with Christ? It will not end well. The theme in the book of James is these two competing philosophies. Do you love the world or do you love Christ? Do you have the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of Christ? Do you go through trials as people in the world do or go through trials knowing that God is at work in them and through them to will and to act according to his good purpose? Do you have wisdom from above or from below? That's the question. And they're contradictory philosophies. They do not line up. There are polarities apart. And spiritual friendship with the world is spiritual adultery with God. Understand that God made the world. Sin ruined the world. The devil rules the world. And in the midst of all that, God is redeeming a race of people for himself out of the world. That's why the Bible calls the redeemed church a holy priesthood, a separated people. They've been made holy by being separated from the world. So how dare you go back to a relationship with the world after being married to Christ. How dare you? How dare you think you can be friends with the world while you're in love with Christ? You can't divorce your wife because you're having an affair and then run around and blame her that you can't remain friends with her after you left her. If you flirt with the world, James says, you're opposed to God. In fact, the word he uses is you're his enemy. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice you're doing it to yourself. God's not making you his enemy. It's not his fault. You're doing this to yourself. So how do people become friends with the world? What, what practically does that look like? And there's just broad headings. Materialism is the most obvious way. They invest their life in this world. Every dollar can be invested in eternity or invested in this world and they build bigger barns for themselves. They think that this or that material item will make them happy and they get their identity in the material world and that is hostility and open revolt against God. Politics, people fall in love with the so-called power of this world. They think that what happens in this world or in this election influences the kingdom of God and they begin to make an idol out of their political involvement. They pursue that and of course, in their mind, that's not in opposition to their relationship with Christ. It's totally compatible except they get wrapped up in the powers of this world. And if your heart is wrapped up in the powers of this world, it is not wrapped up in Jesus Christ. I've heard people want to rebuke Jesus for his answer to Pilate when he says, my kingdom's not in this world, otherwise people would be fighting for me. Jesus, you should ask. We would have gone to war for you, my friend. Pragmatism. Materialism. 
politics pragmatism, the idea that you can do certain things in your ministry, in your life, in church, in your relationships with those at work that, that reflect the world just to try to win people to the world. That's what I mean by pragmatism. If I watch the same things they walk, if I watch, if I listen to the same music they listen to, if I can have the same pastimes they have, then they will like me and it's pragmatic because then they'll come to Christ is the idea. Look like the world, win people to Christ. That's pragmatism. It's friendship with the world. But for most of us, it probably isn't something as refined as the love of materialism or politics or pragmatism. For most of us, it's probably just the love of sin. Simply put, friendship with the world often manifests itself in just sinful desires. I lust after this, I want this, I desire this, and that's what got my heart, so there I'm all in. James 2.23 gives you a contrast. If you believe in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection by faith, you are, James 2.23 says, a friend of God. If you then turn around and pursue a relationship with the world, your friendship with God is affected, separated, dissipated. You understand this again at a human level. If you're in love with your wife or in love with your husband and then you settle into patterns in your marriage or maybe you're watching TV every night or you're just consumed by that kind of entertainment and distraction, you see how your love and affection for your wife becomes diluted, becomes dissipated. Just from entertainment. You just settle in the routine. You'd rather watch what's on TV than be with her. And your love is diluted. Now, I know you know what I'm talking about. Ask yourself this question. Do you expect your spouse to notice that your love for him or her is diluted? Clearly, they notice. And it produces a conversation. I think you're being distracted. I think you're, you're watching too much of this or doing too much of that. I feel like you don't have time for me in this or time for me. That. You have the conversation about it because it's apparent that your love and affection is being diluted. So now move again from the human world to the spiritual world. Do you expect Christ to notice that your love for him is diluted by your affections for the world? Certainly he will notice. This temptation is not new. It didn't enter the world with TV or whatever. This temptation is as old. It's as old, really as Abel. 2 Corinthians 11, verse two, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, writing to the church, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In other words, Paul's saying to his church, Paul speaking as a pastor, saying, I betrothed you to Jesus. There was an arranged marriage and everything. I, the contracts were signed, it happened. I gave you to Christ, but now your affections are being led away. That's the goal of the world, to dilute your affections, to get your heart to follow after it. The world doesn't even need you to change allegiances. It just needs you to dilute your love for Christ. In the contrast, what's the very thing Jesus wants from you? He doesn't want your money. What is the very thing Jesus wants from you? He wants your heart. He wants your affections. And that's exactly where the world competes. I read August Wilson's play, The Fences. Perhaps many of you, I know some of you have probably seen the movie, but in the play, it draws out the motivations of this protagonist. And protagonist is, I mean, he's not a good guy. He was leading a life filled with adultery. 
There's a gripping scene in it, though, where he justifies his life of adultery to his wife. After work, every day he goes off with this other woman, but every night he comes home to his wife, and that's what he tells her. Hey, I'm here every night. You should be happy with that. Every night I come home. Imagine how spiritually and socially stunted, myopic, deficient you would have to be to think that that's an acceptable excuse for adultery. Hey, I come home. Aren't you happy I'm here? And a spouse in that kind of relationship is well within even her biblical rights to divorce. Now apply that to your relationship with Christ. How many people think, I can be in love with the world this hour, that hour, this day, that day, but Jesus is gonna be happy with me because I come to church on Sunday. Hey, I come home on Sunday. As if he were to be impressed. And this is exactly what our hearts are inclined to do. This is the point of verse five. Do you suppose it is of no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that is made to dwell within us. This is a very complicated verse to translate. Time gets away from me if I spend much time with it. Let me just tell you this. I think the the best way to render this is to say what's describing is that God has given us a human spirit and our human spirit is depraved. Our human spirit falls, it tends towards sin. Sparks fly upward, our human spirit flies downward. Our heart wants to leave God. It just is prone to sin. That's what it means to have a sinful heart. Our heart is jealous because we're sinners. It's constantly drifting. This is why you have a wedding ring to remind you, not to remind you that you're married. You remember that you're married. Your wedding ring reminds you that you made a covenant. You made a promise. You need that because we're forgetful. James 4 verse 5 is the idea that our heart is jealous. Our heart, our spirit goes away from the Lord. It's a powerful feeling that jealousy in her heart. Remember what Rachel said when Leah was pregnant? She said, give me children. I'm filled with jealousy. Give me children or I die. That's Genesis 30 verse one. And it's the same language that's used here. Her spirit was striving. Her spirit was filled with jealousy. What verse is this talking about? When it says, of no purpose of the scripture says, Proverbs 21 verse 10, the soul of the wicked desires evil. That's what this verse is saying. The soul of the wicked person desires evil. What James wants you to do is recognize that. Recognize your spiritual adultery. Put it to death. You have a choice to make. Are you going to be friends of the world or friends with Christ? You cannot do both. Well, second, receive available grace. First, recognize your spiritual adultery. Second, receive available grace. In marriage counseling, this is the most basic question to ask in marriage counseling. You're in a difficult marriage, a difficult relationship. Here's the most basic question. Do you believe that God can keep your marriage together? Do you believe that God has the power to keep your marriage together? It's, that's the most basic question in a strained marriage. Surprising often people will say no. I don't believe it. God can create the world in six days. <laughs> but he, this marriage is too far gone. He can't do it. Can't do it. James takes that lie, now applies it to your relationship with Christ. 
Do you believe that Jesus can keep your heart? Do you believe that he can restore your relationship? Now again, in a human relationship, because we're moving back and forth between these two worlds here, in a human relationship, the marriage is strange, perhaps one person is having an affair, what's it gonna be necessary to reconcile this relationship? At the very least, the person who is leading the adulterous life is going to have to confess it, is going to have to come clean and say this is sin and it is wrong and I confess it and I ask for forgiveness. And that, it, it's insane, but that's exactly what the adulterer is often unwilling to do because that requires humility and oftentimes the person's unwilling to do that. I'm not gonna confess that I was wrong. He's wronged me or she's wronged me. They made me, they drove me to this. This is, this is their fault. For me to confess that I'm wrong would be breaking myself down. I'm unwilling to do that. So in that kind of situation, guess what? There is no hope. Because arrogance has propped up. Arrogance has built the fence. But if the person confesses and comes clean, and repents, how do you think their spouse will respond? And there's a load of things going on there. It depends a lot on their relationship. Anger, disappointment. I've heard people say, I can't confess to my spouse because they'll get angry. They'll yell, they'll cuss, they'll throw things, they'll even turn to a physical attack. So I could never confess my sin to her or to him. Now move back to the spiritual relationship. How do you think that Jesus will respond if you confess your spiritual adultery to him? Do you think he will respond with anger? Do you think he will respond by creating more distance? Do you think he will respond by, by severing his relationship with you and throwing you out? And the answer that James gives you here is no. He, Jesus responds to your confession with, the word here is grace. <laughs> In fact, more grace, more grace, grace upon grace. There was grace in your creation, grace in your salvation, and now grace received in forgiving your sins when you confess them. Grace after grace after grace after grace is how he responds. He gives more grace. But if you're unwilling to respond, that grace is not available to you because God opposes the proud. If you don't confess, God opposes you. Therefore, verse six says, therefore, in light of this, in light of the fact that your spirit strives with jealousy and is, is afflicted with jealousy, in light of that, God gives you grace when you repent. Of course he opposes the proud. It's Proverbs three, verse 34. Towards the scorners he is scornful, but towards the humble he gives grace. So why should you come receive grace from him? Because he makes it available to you. You should be won back to Christ because of the beauty of Christ, because of the love of Christ, because he set his heart on you. I mean, do you think he's going to divorce you? Here's where you have to see the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Israel was given a certificate of divorce because of their adulterous ways under the every tree with the other gods. They were divorced and they were sent in exile. What a contrast with Christ's relationship to you. He won't send you away. Do you think that he set his heart on you before the foundations of time, wrote your name in his book of life, that the Father sent the Son to die for you, the Holy Spirit has been sent to this world to draw you and change your heart and place you into a relationship with, through the church of marriage to Christ, and now he's gonna say, but I didn't see this coming. It's all over. 
course not. Allow yourself to be melted by the love of Christ. Allow your arrogance and your hard-heartedness and your love for the world to be crushed and broken and decimated by the force of the love of Christ and the grace of our Savior. First, recognize your adulterous love. Second, receive available grace. And third, practice absolute submission. Practice absolute submission. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And here's where the analogy sort of leaves our world of marriage. Obviously, there's submission in marriage. If you look up the word submit in the New Testament, it's used by three or four times about wives to husbands and three or four times about the church to Christ. And yet, it's not the same kind of submission. In a marriage relationship, you're dealing with two people, fallen, sinful, limited knowledge, Incomplete without the other. Incomplete. Not so in our relationship with Christ. He's totally complete without us. He's infallible, inerrant. His word is. He's perfect. He doesn't need our wisdom. He doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need our advice. And this is why you submit completely to him. What his word says, you do. You recognize that your relationship with Christ is different in that you're not a relationship of equals. This is not a marriage contract as long as the two of you shall both live. This is an eternal contract that was written before you were born and will carry on after you die. This is exactly what the unrighteous have no access to. This is why Romans 8 verse 7 says the ungodly do not submit to God's law. Or Romans 10 verse 3, they do not submit to God's righteousness. And it's exactly what believers are called to do. To submit to his law and to submit to his righteousness. So crucify your own desires. Break off your friendship with the world. Celebrate that your own autonomy is swallowed up in Christ. So often people are friends with the world because they want to be in charge of their life. Recognize, I mean, in a human marriage, a wife changes her name to her husband's name to demonstrate that very point. There's a new family, a new identity now. In your spiritual relationship with Christ, it's that to the millionth degree. Your identity is swallowed up. Your name is changed. You belong to him. Or go the way of the enemy, whose fate is the grave. Go the way of Psalm 68, verse 21. God will strike the heads of his enemies. God destroys his enemies. The person who's in an adulterous relationship in this world is playing with burning their whole family, their whole legacy, their whole house to the ground. The person who's in an adulterous relationship with Jesus Christ can burn his eternal soul forever. Lord, we know that you will not abandon your elect, but you will pursue them, win them, love them, claim them, and draw them to yourself. So Lord, in that confidence we pray that you would help us cling to you. Make us more into your image. Cause our affections for the world to flee and cause our love for you to be fanned. We want to love you more and love the world less. It is just that simple. But we know unless your Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and opens our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, we'll be unable to do that. So we pray that you would do that this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. 
You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.